Hello and welcome to Manchester, your airport man. I'm Tom Fordyce. And I'm Adam Jopp. And together we're lifting the lid on one of the UK's biggest airports. On this episode, we're taking to the skies once again to find out what really goes on inside the cockpit. That feeling now still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. That feeling of elation that I've actually won this scholarship and I'm going to learn to fly. When the power levers came up and the rumble of the engines felt through your seat, I just couldn't stop grinning. Before we take the skies with our pilot, I wanted to talk to you, Adam, about the air traffic control challenges we've all seen reported. So tell us what's happened. Well, there was a nationwide issue, a company called Nats, uh, which does air traffic control across the whole UK. They had a problem on their systems, uh, which meant the processing of flight data that would normally happen automatically, they had to do manually. And that was obviously taking a lot longer, which was inevitably then going to lead to delays of takeoffs, departures and affecting schedules of all airlines across all airports in the UK. So not a small challenge. A big old challenge. Um, As you say, it happened at every airport across the UK. So how did Manchester respond? It's one of those interesting scenarios, and we've touched on this, that so much of the airport journey isn't actually delivered by the airport. So the air traffic control is done by somebody else, and the flights are operated by loads of different airlines. And we're effectively the buildings that, that people travel through and the runways um, that they use. So there's a, I guess there's a few um, areas of focus for us. The, the first thing is just coordination and convening all of our airlines together, trying to understand from their point of view what the impact is going to be and what their response is going to be. So we've got an understanding of how busy the terminals are going to be, how busy the airport's going to be, and, and what the flying programme is going to look like. You know, Another massive focus for us then is is communication. Although we don't operate the flights, you know, we do have an ability to speak directly to passengers. And so the, our number one priority then was just getting the, the message out there and saying, guys, there is a challenge. We don't know the exact impact at this stage, but please do keep an eye out on your flight with your airline, you know, make a decision on your travel plans accordingly. Uh, and then really just looking to provide a constant drumbeat of information. So looking to every 45 minutes to an hour, be updating that with the very, very latest. And in some cases, that's just us saying there is no new news. It is as was. We're still looking at it. We're still trying to understand the picture. But it's still super important they speak to your airlines. And, you know, in some cases, there's people who haven't come to the airport yet. And so if they're going to be faced by a, a delay or a cancellation... It's better for them to know up front and not come to the terminal because if they come and they're faced by a delay, one, they're going to be in a busy building and two, there's, there's every chance the flight then might get cancelled and the kind of impacts. The communication was huge. And then we start to then think about the things that we do have responsibility for. So obviously a lot of people might have booked car parking with us and they're either going to be arriving back later than they thought because they've had a delay or cancellation or they're going to be at the airport already and then the flight gets cancelled but they've paid for parking and, and feel that they now know don't, don't need a fortnight or a week. Uh, or in other cases, they haven't actually come to the airport yet. So we worked really quickly up front to say, look, you know, we don't want people to be disadvantaged here. If they come back later than we thought, they'd normally be hit with a charge or they'd have to pay longer. You know, we'd waive that, we'd lift the barrier for them to get out if they could show that they'd flown back. You know, in other cases, reminding them that they can cancel a booking up to an hour before travelling. So if they do get that advance notice about the cancellation, get themselves online, cancel your booking or amend it to when you know you are flying. And look, those who are unfortunate enough to already be at the airport or in the terminal and the flight 
got cancelled, you know, we just were able to sort of process refunds for them and just do that en masse without administrative burden. So just looking after them as much as we could. And then after that, I was providing the best possible information we could based on what our airlines were telling us. As you know, because we talked about it, I don't live that far from the airport. And I could see flights leaving and arriving at Manchester as this was going on. So how was that able to happen? This was a technical issue that meant things couldn't happen in as automated a way as it would have done normally, but they were able to process flights still manually. That just takes longer. So flights were able to still take off and depart. It just meant you were able to get fewer in the skies. And so what they would do at a national level is put... Uh, restrictions in place about how many aircraft um, there can be in the sky at one point. And I think it got to the point where there was a restriction that meant that the same number of aircraft could be in the air at one time that was the same would normally be the case just for one you know, major airport. And so that shows you the scale of the reduction. But it wasn't a complete standstill. But of course, what the more that goes on, what that then means is airlines are making decisions about the next day. And, you know, where are their aircraft going to be and what we call where do the aircraft go to sleep overnight and where they're supposed to be. And if it's obvious that they're not going to make it there and back again, they'll probably just make the call just to cancel it and say, we'll cut our losses for today and try and get everyone else on flights later in the week. Thinking about it, it's the knock-on effect of all these things that's, that's difficult. And I guess that's the challenge for the airport to manage all of those. That's right. I mean, you're all of a sudden, you know people will be moved on to future flights, but then all of a sudden there's the potential that you've got X percentage more people coming to the airport the following day than you'd anticipated. The planes are going to be more full than what they were. There's cars in places that they weren't supposed to be in your car parks, or there's more cars in car parks than was going to be the case. So just understanding what the impact of that is. You know, when people are obviously frustrated, upset, you know, disappointed about their trips, being impacted and you know this was right up against this was right at the end of the bank holiday right up against some schools going back as happened with my brother as it happens all this happened at the same time as other challenges there were storms in places like Mallorca that were already disrupting travel plans and so there was already some people who'd had their plans disrupted there was a bit going on to say the least but thankfully the impacts were you know over and done with within you know 24 48 hours um, and we're back to normal pretty quickly. And I suppose almost the most important question here is when we deal with something like this, you can deal with the aftermath. Is it likely to happen again? I mean, in many ways, that's a question for Nats uh, themselves. And we've heard from the organisation, certainly in my time here, I've not seen anything like it before, which would tell you it's a rare occurrence. And certainly nothing of this nature that affects the whole of the country at the same time, other than an Icelandic ash cloud at that time. I remember that, yeah. So, you know, I'm sure everyone at Nats is working hard to learn whatever they need to learn from it and um, you know prevent something like this happening again. This has actually reminded me, Adam, in episode four of our first series when we spoke to the air traffic control team, we did get a story from Tom up there in the tower about how it used to be with the paper strips. So if you're interested in that, go back and have a listen. Our guest on this week's episode is no stranger to the skies. Damien Eichin is a pilot for TUI and spends much of his time up in the clouds. Damien, when did you first realise you wanted to be a pilot? Was this something that gripped you from childhood? Crikey, that's quite easy really. It's my first memory. I can't remember wanting to be anything else. So I don't know whether it was with my granddad buying me a small model aeroplane or not, or at the age of three, four, five years old, but I just wanted to fly. Mum and dad thought oh, he'll change his mind if he want to be a fireman one day and a train driver the next day, but no, it was always a pilot, never wanted to change. And everything I'd done through school, through college, through university, through initial jobs, was always 
a path towards being able to get a flying license, a pilot's license, and do the professional training and get into the industry. And fortunately for me, I got there and I've been living the dream ever since. So I stopped work 34 years ago when I started flying professionally. It's not work really for me, it's just me and it's wonderful. Okay, how did you first get into the profession? Well, at the time, I couldn't afford what we call an integrated course, which now will cost about 120000 So I went to the Air Training Corps at the age of 13, so like the scouts of the Air Force, and I spent seven, eight years with them, and I won a scholarship, and they awarded me 30 hours of free flying training at Blackpool Airport. And in that 30 hours, we had to complete the 38-hour full course for private pilot's licence. So I had to save up to pay for the extra eight hours myself to get the licence itself. And we did all that in four weeks at Blackpool. And that was the first stepping stone to getting that. I can remember the day the RAF letter arrived on my doorstep at mum and dad's house. I was 17 and I opened it up and that feeling now still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. That feeling of elation that I've actually won this scholarship and I'm going to learn to fly. And then from there onwards, it was everything was geared up around flying experience, gaining hours to get some more experience, studied whilst I was at British Aerospace at Preston in my spare time for the exams, did all the exams. I started training people at Blackpool. I was there for about a year to gain some experience. And then I worked on a 12-seater aircraft at Vickers Shipbuilding in Barrow Furness, flying the, the bosses up and down the country. Spent two years there. And then about nine months at Cardiff, working for a company called British Regional, City Express it is now, I think, flying a 30-seater and then after I spent nine months there, I got a captain's job with them and transferred to Manchester. And I arrived here in 1993. Three years later, I transferred to Air 2000 to fly the 757 for them. And that has the same company as I'm working for now because it changed from Air 2000 to First Choice to Thompson. And now it's TUI. This is something I've always wondered, Damien. What kind of training is involved? The ground exams that you do will cover things like meteorology, the weather, some technical things about how the engines work, how the aerodynamics of the aircraft work and how the navigation equipment works and the radio equipment works. Not that we're there to, uh, to fix it at all, but it's a good understanding of how it works so we can identify any problems if they arise and tell the engineers. And then there's obviously the flying, the actual hands-on flying experience that you need and the training. So you initially do what I call dual flying, so there's you and the instructor. And then when you get to a certain standard, you'll then be sent off solo to do your first flight on your own and then you build more experience by doing that the course for private pilot's license is the first step would be about 40 hours of flying training and then to do what you call a modular course now you will do different levels of training on slightly larger airplanes or twin engine aircraft for example you learn to fly in clouds so you can't see which way up you are you have to look at your instruments and decipher what the instruments are telling you fly the right heading the right speed be at the right altitude fly the certain route with navigation aids which you have to tune and identify so there's a lot of work it sounds difficult but it is to start with like people drive a car initially it's hard but now you don't think anything of it and it's the same with airplanes with the training which is so intense and so thorough they cover everything so when people go flying now as passengers they should know and be understanding that the pilots at the front are very well trained and certainly at TUI I know I'm biased, but second to none. Are there sort of particular skills that you have to have before you start? I'd say have a logical mind, be able to deal with problems, don't worry about things, because worry doesn't solve anything. That way you get the best out of the person you're flying with. 
because there's obviously there's two pilots at all times in the flight deck with us. We work as a team, and it doesn't matter that I'm the captain. If the first officer's got a better idea or is a bit concerned about something, they voice it, and we work out the best solution forward. Right, so that's the training. How do you qualify to actually fly planes? How do you qualify as a pilot? When you've got your commercial licence, it means you've been through the flight tests for the Civil Aviation Authority, you've done all your exams, ticked all the boxes, and you get a licence. But then a company like TUI would then train you on the airplane they want you to fly, the 737 or the Dreamliner. And that training is then specific for that aircraft. Once you've completed that training, you've done the exams on that aircraft and the flight exams as well, then you'll have that added to your licence. So you'll be able to fly that aeroplane using your licence. So it's not like when you drive a car and you've passed your car driving licence. You can drive any car. In the aviation world, you're allowed to drive or fly an aircraft, but only a specific one, one at a time. But what two are you doing at the moment? They're leading the way now. Just recently, we've set up a what's called MPL scheme for new pilots to train. And the MPL is multi-pilot licence. So they're only trained to fly an aircraft which is in the TUI fleet, the 737 or the Dreamliner, which will obviously have two pilots, there'll be one of them. And to get into that scheme, you only need five GCSEs. You don't have to be rocket scientists or anything. You need the right attitude, the right temperament and the will to uh, to succeed. And we've just taken on, I believe, 30 pilots that have never flown before. We'll train them from scratch. And within, I'm guessing, 18 months, two years' time, We'll see them on the 737s of of our fleets flying our customers around Europe. And I'm sure there are young people listening to this who want to do what you've done. So how can young people go about becoming pilots themselves? It's changed since I did it 35 years ago. But it's changed now that you can do what you call a modular route, where you do one small course and then leave a little bit, get in some experience, and then you do another one. Um, It's a lot cheaper, I believe. But if you go to do a residential course, which will take 12 to 18 months, it can be upwards of 120,000 plus to do this, which puts it out the reach of an awful lot of people, put it out of reach of me, so I couldn't have done that. But now, thankfully, TUI have recognised that you know we need pilots in the future. There'll be the next generation captains coming through, and we've opened it up to everybody, which is a wonderful opportunity, it really is. It's, it, I can imagine the feeling that the 30 pilots have got that we've just taken on but with the same I had when I was 17 and opened a letter from the Royal Air Force to say I won a flying scholarship and I was going to learn to fly. The sta- again, the hairs are on the back of my neck are standing up now. I can't wait to meet these people you know, that we've just joined um, and to share experiences with them. Right, I'm going to take us back a little bit now, Damien. Can you tell us, if you can remember it, your first ever flight? My first flight was at Blackpool Airport. I'd just done five and a half hours training and they said I was good enough and sent me off on my own to fly once around the airport and land. And I can remember every second of that. It was absolutely stunning, absolutely buzzing from it. But you had so much work to do, because at the time it was new, that it was over and done within a heartbeat. It took about five minutes, but it felt like seconds. But it's a wonderful experience. The first passenger was my dad. We call him Roger now. He was brave enough to come up flying with me. And we had to fly around over the house in Warmer Bridge, just south of Preston, and then up towards Lake District and then back into Blackpool. And we had a wonderful day out. My other flight I can remember vividly was my first flight on the wide-bodied 767, the heavy aeroplane from Air 2000 days. And that was from Manchester going to Orlando in Florida. 
And I remember sat out just there, was looking out the window now, at the runway, on that runway, when the power levers came up and the rumble of the engines felt through your seat. I just couldn't stop grinning as I was allowed to take off. The captain, Bill Pinnock it was at the time, allowed me to do the takeoff for this first flight on the 767 out of here. And it was stunning. I just loved it. And what about a favourite flight you've ever done? I love sunsets. I hate sunrises because sunrises usually mean we're halfway across the Atlantic on the way home and it means we've been up all night. But that's part of the job. My favourite experience was with Air 2000 and it was a 757, a product called TCS and StarQuest, which is a round-the-world expedition. And we were partners with these companies that took 233 seats out of the 757 and put 70 first-class seats back in. And we took people, guests with very expensive tastes around the world. And we had a 28-day trip around the world going to a wonderful place like Easter Island and Machu Picchu in Peru. It's absolutely stunning. Lots and lots of happy memories. I'm sure your day varies massively depending on what you're doing. So can you talk us through what a typical day might look like for you? So flying the Dreamliner, it's usually long-haul flights. So we arrive at the airport one hour before the flight's due to push back from the stand. And during that time, we'll download the paperwork we need, which has been set up for us by our ops department. So that will tell us the route we're going to fly, how much fuel we need as a minimum. And then we check the weathers for our en route alternates in case we have to duck in if there's a medical emergency, for example. And then we decide then in the crew room, myself and the first officer, how much fuel we need and um, head out to the aircraft. We then set up the aircraft itself, the computer, put the route into it and do our initial checks to make sure the aircraft is safe and it's got everything we need. The cabin crew doing their job as well, preparing the cabin for the passengers and making sure the catering's on board, the cleaning's all complete and etc. The engineers are checking the aircraft outside for us and also we've got the ground crew that load all the bags into the holds and the fueler as well. We also need another team to arrive with a what we call a tug. It's a, like a tractor that pushes aircraft back from the stand. Aircraft go forward very well but they don't go back, backwards very well so we need some assistance with that. And once everything's sorted we get the passengers on, all security checks are done, we'll close up and then we'll head out and taxi out to whichever runway we're going to take off from. Usually out towards Nutsford, Mobley direction. We've done all our performance figures to make sure we know how fast we need to take off at and what power settings we need. And then off we go. And the busiest time is on the ground, uh, negotiating with air traffic about getting out of the stand. And then when the wheels are up, you can relax and think, that's just plane sailing now or plane flying. When we get to destination, obviously we land, secure the aircraft and then the passengers disembark. And then that's our job done. We then head off to the hotel for usually 24 hours and then we fly on back repeat just in the opposite direction we've all got an idea in our head haven't we of what a cockpit in a plane looks like we've seen them on tv we might have had a little wander in as kids if we were lucky what's it like to actually work in one comfortable it's the dreamliner is exceptionally comfortable um we've got temperature controls in there we've got blinds we can shield itself from the sun it's a little bit noisy at times but newer airplanes are more comfortable and easy to work with less switches more touchscreen lots of things that are there to take care of us but we still need to monitor the new cockpits this day and age now the ones that the our new pilots will experience through their career is going to be a delight to fly so you're in there damien who else is in the cockpit with you myself as captain and a first officer who's trained to the same standard that i am just that i have the legal responsibility then after that there's nobody unless it's an exceptionally long flight in which case we'll have three pilots 
and on the Dreamliner we have bunks so we can go and take some rest and legally on long flights we have to take rest usually 90 minutes or more so there's always two people in the flight deck the cabin crew will come into the flight deck to look after us with food and drink and if they've got any issues there they can have a chat with us face to face by coming into the office at the front office flight deck is one of the same things for me I always enjoyed, Damien, how calm pilots are when the rest of us are feeling slightly panicky when a bit of turbulence hits. So what's actually going on in the cockpit when the plane starts bumping around a little bit? Very little, actually. We might turn the seatbelt signs on to keep people strapped in. But when you say to people, what is turbulence? If the air was moving horizontally, we call it wind. If it moves up and down, we call it turbulence. So it's just wind. It's nothing to worry about if you're feeling a little bit uh, unwell with the turbulence it's simply because what you feel in your tummy is different to what you can see in front of you because the seat in front of you is not moving very much but your tummy is and my advice is if that starts to happen just pop your head back and close your eyes and just relax but with us it's not a concern it's an inconvenience that's all it is the strength of these aeroplanes now to see them being tested at Boeing or Airbus it's just amazing the wings will flex and we'll move, we look outside at the tip of the wing and it might be going up and down, it's not a problem. And it's so, so well regulated and over-engineered that everybody's safe on an aeroplane. I've always thought a pilot, Damien, has probably more perks of their job than most of us. So do you have a favourite destination to fly to, a favourite runway to land on? I have to go back to the round the world trip, which was Easter Island, which is four hours on the far side of Chile in the middle of the Pacific. And I believe NASA extended the runway to be a space shuttle diversion. But that is just stunning. You have what we call island reserve, because with you being four hours away from the nearest airport, you can't have somebody blocking the runway when you get there, because you don't have enough fuel to get there and back. So when you reach part way across, the runway's kept sterile, so nobody can go on the runway, not even a vehicle, nothing, until you've landed. But when we get there, it means there's nobody in the sky around there. And this was with the VIP guests that we had. So we were able to do a fly past of the island uh, one way and then we did it anti-clockwise so everyone could see both sides. And we saw the Maui heads and then landed on this runway there. It was stunning, absolutely wonderful. So if I could go back there with the Dreamliner, I'd be fighting for that flight. I'd love to do that again. Do lots of pilots feel the same way? Are there popular ones with all pilots? I suppose Salzburg and Innsbruck in the Alps with the mountains around. It's high workload because it's not quite simple. I haven't flown into Innsbruck because you need special training and only a certain number of pilots get the training. The training is intense, it has to be, because of the terrain around that you have to negotiate around. But on a nice day, the rewarding views that you get on the way into the mountains to Salzburg and to Innsbruck are stunning. So Adam, we are approaching the end of our second series. It's been a lot of fun. We've met a lot of interesting people again and found out heaps of things that certainly I didn't know about the airport before. Um, your favourite parts of the series? I am going to start probably slightly obviously with Keith of Seven Brothers and his delicious beer samples. Yeah, well, that's no great surprise. Um, sadly, <laughs> my SI pass prevents me from consuming anything whilst I'm on duty. But you know, on a related matter, I you know I thought it was fascinating to hear from Stephen about how we choose the bars, restaurants, shops that go um, into an airport. I think we certainly found from Series One that they're the kind of things that people don't really think about the thought and the detail and the process that goes into some of this airport planning and. You know, actually exciting times and a reminder that this big project we've got going on, building the airport of the future, will have some 
you know, some really great venues in there and it'll, you know, a lot of work is going in to make sure that it hits the spot for, um, for passengers. I have very fond memories of chatting to Nick from Virgin Atlantic, all his tales about what it's like working in cabin crew, his very natty Vivian Westwood designed uniform and his tales of how you deal with sort of passengers, good and bad. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I think it's one of those careers that um, a lot of people would think, oh, they would love to have given it a go or just wonder what that lifestyle is like. So it was great to to hear about that. And, you know, I, I really... You know, I love it when we get outside guests on. So it was great to hear from Professor Filipponi from mm. the university and get an insight into his personal expertise, but also just to start to think about the the different technologies that could come into air travel in the future. That's true. If there's one thing I didn't expect to learn in this series, Adam, it's that you can bring a cat skull through security. We learned that from the social media team. Yeah, and I mean that was obviously another personal um, highlight, and I think mean, that just is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the weird and wonderful um, requests they get. I think it was fantastic to hear about the work they do, just to give passengers the information. But again, I, I always say this that you know the idea that there'll be so many young people out there who are sort of spend their life on social media, the idea that could be a career for someone one day, and you know what a great thing actually that those guys are the ones who get to interact with our passengers, um, and I think that was my other highlight really is that the feedback from the pod has been great and there's been constant feedback from passengers who love it and have got questions for us and for the team so to be able to put some of those live questions to Chris and hear from Chris again and and know that we're directly answering the things that listeners and and our fans want to know about I think it it was great to do that as well. And also nice Adam even if it was in the last of our episodes in this series to hear from Damien about life as a pilot, which I'm sure both of us, certainly growing up, had down as the most glamorous job involved at an airport. Absolutely. And, you know, what's nice is we had such a great response to the um, cabin crew episode that we did that people were telling us they'd love to hear about other careers in the sky and the pilot job in particular. So um, really great to, to work with Tui, one of our other airlines, and with a pilot for this episode. And you're right, I think, to actually find out, you know, how it is that you can get into that career if it's something you really want to want to do and what that life is really like was was fascinating. Now, as we sit here today, we can look out of the window and there is barely a cloud in the sky. The Pennines are as clear as they will ever be in the distance. So it feels strange thinking about the end of summer, but the team here is already thinking about Christmas. That's right. I mean, it's. Um I think I saw on social media yesterday that it's 20 weeks uh, to Christmas. And so if you take 20 weeks back in time, that was pretty much the start of the summer season. So to be thinking that we're now, you know, planning for the winter season and for Christmas is, you know, in many ways natural. So before you know, it'll be here and it'll be a different type of um, routes that we offer, a different type of traveller. There'll be uh, the advice we're providing to people about not wearing too many layers and what to do with um, (laughs) Christmas crackers and, um, you know, the people who are skiing and, you know, hats and goggles and all that sort of stuff and, you know, a whole different set of advice, but, you know, just part of the, the nature of working at airports. Well, time never stands still at Manchester Airport. And this brings us to the end of our second series. So from Adam and from me, thanks so much for listening. Make sure you stay subscribed as our feed will be bringing you all the latest news and developments from Manchester Airport.